what's good you already know who it is and if you don't know who it is it's your man leon benson aka leon genesis we back at it again man this is episode 161 season four of the passion purpose perspective podcast by yours truly we out here we working it's sunday fun day september 3rd 2023 last episode we talked about the worst fitness tips part one and then in the world of finance we went over the economic weekly roundup and then we are back on consolidated balance sheets in 10k reports and we specifically talked about accounts payable so if you want to check out all of the details on that episode you can go back into the feed and check out episode 160. now today we're going to talk about the worst fitness tips part two and then in the world of finance we're going to give economic update for the week and then we're going to talk about long-term debt obligations so before we do that, make sure that you download, rate, comment, and subscribe to the podcast because we got more episodes on the way. Now, honestly, last week I was trying to figure out some topics to talk about um, and it's a little more difficult because at this point I'm starting to feel like, you know, I'm backtracking or I'm just repeating stuff. So trying to keep it, uh, you know, as interesting or as fresh or as new as possible in regards to things that you may not have heard or just, you know, giving you information in a way that you haven't heard it before. So it feels like it's different. And yeah, I don't have any events coming up. I already told you guys about, you know, my nutrition. I already told you guys about how my training goes. So yeah, I just thought, you know what, I'll just talk about some of the worst fitness advice that is you know circulating around the internet and yeah last week was part one so let's get into part two now one of the worst tips in fitness this week is in regards to nutrition so low calorie diets now i found an article on blog nasm.org by Jacqueline uh, Kaminsky. So if you don't know what NASM is, it's the National Academy of Sports Medicine. So it's a highly accredited, respectable uh, fitness and nutritional company. They certify nutritionists, they certify personal trainers, etc. Um, so yeah, that's where the source is. Now, in this article, there were, I believe there were five, um, five nutritional pieces of advice that you should avoid. Um, I got three of them here. So yeah, number one is low calorie diets. Now I'm quoting the article here. A big mistake is consuming too few, uh, too few calories. Every individual has a minimum caloric requirement. This is known as your basal metabolic rate or your BMR. When you consume less than your minimum amount, 
you run the risk of decreased energy levels, loss of muscle, depressed immune function, and hormonal disruption. Low-calorie diets can also cause rapid weight loss, which can lead to rapid weight gain once you stop following that specific diet, a.k.a. yo-yo dieting. So stay away from low-calorie diets. Now, the second worst tip in regards to nutrition is avoiding consumption of fats. So... We need fat in our diets to support hormone production. Fats also contain many essential vitamins like vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, and vitamin K. Good fats are unsaturated fats, and examples of unsaturated fats are things like nuts, oils, and avocados. So for those of you out there who are going on these random-ass crash diets, stop Stop minimizing your calories to the point where you're just completely suffering. Um, Because, again, if we go back to the first piece of terrible nutrition advice, low-calorie diets, they're going to cause rapid weight loss, which you may think is good. But the problem with that is it, it could lead to rapid weight gain. So where your body weight is fluctuating up and down. Ergo, you're having like these drastic effects, which also can cause other health complications. Um, And then, yeah, the second one, avoiding consuming fat. Like, listen, fats are good for you. You need fats. Fats um, not only insulate your internal organs and protect them, but fats also allow you to feel more satiated, aka they allow you to feel fuller for longer when you're consuming them. Um, And also too, fat also helps facilitate weight loss, believe it or not. Like you need fats, carbs, and proteins in your diet as far as the macronutrients. So avoiding fat entirely means that at some point you're going to probably become malnourished. Um, And you're going to lose a significant amount of body fat to where it becomes unhealthy and counterproductive to your weight loss goals. Now, the third uh, tip or the not it's not a tip, but the third issue with bad advice in regards to nutrition is late night eating. A lot of people think that eating late at night is will make them fat. This is is false, you know, in terms of some of the research that I've done, which is not very extensive. I'm not even going front. I'm not going cap as the kids say. But yes, as somebody who does eat at night from time to time, like it's not when you eat, it's how much you eat versus how many calories you're burning. So calories in, calories out. Greg Doucette says this all the time, calories in, calories out. If you are consuming more calories than you burn, you are going to get fat. However, if you're in a calorie deficit and it's midnight and you're eating within the limitations of whatever your maximum amount of of, of calories are and you still have burnt, you know, 
X amount of calories in order to hit that, that threshold or to not go over it, you're not going to get fat. Um, now, an issue with eating at night could be that if you're somebody who has a regular sleep schedule and you follow your natural circadian rhythm by being up during the day and sleeping eight hours at night and you eat like a very large meal at night, that could disrupt your sleep because now your body is trying to digest food, which takes, I don't know, I would guess many hours for your body to digest foods, especially if these foods are very, you know, high in calories or high in fats or even high in sugar or whatever. Even if they're healthier foods, eating a large amount of, of healthy, low calorie dense foods at night, that could disrupt your sleep which could alter your hormonal functions. And then that could also play into you gaining excess weight because you're not getting adequate sleep. So that part I understand. However, again, if you're in a calorie deficit, as long as you're in some sort of calorie deficit or you're eating at maintenance levels where you're not gaining weight and you're not losing any weight, then you don't have to worry about what time you're eating because that's not a thing. It's how many calories you're putting in your body versus how many calories you're burning. So as long as you're burning more calories than you're consuming, you're always going to be in some sort of calorie deficit, constantly burning enough calories not to gain any extra weight. Um, so when you eat is not a huge deal. Um, there are some studies and some articles that say, Within the first hour, you should be consuming some type of protein source and this and that to start the fat burning process, blah, blah, blah. Other people believe in fasting, intermittent fasting. I'm somebody who has recently started intermittent fasting um, during the week. On the weekends, I get wild, I get crazy, I turn up. But yeah, I do do some intermittent fasting during the week. Um, I try not to eat anything after about between like 5 and 7, I try to stop eating. 5 and 7 p.m. Um but still, there are days where I eat at night. I'll eat, you know, like, honestly, yeah, I'm probably going to eat, you know, within the next hour. So do I want to necessarily like not really, but I'm just trying to like kind of take a break from the hardcore training and hardcore dieting, um, you know, from my from my last event that I that I competed in. So I'm trying to just kind of enjoy life a little bit. Um, but at the same time, I'm not going to have like a huge ass meal before I sleep. Um, but again, like me eating at, you know, right now it's 7.52 PM. If I eat at 8.52 PM, like I'm not going to wake up the next day and be fatter or, you know, within the next two weeks from now, because I ate at 8.52 PM. Oh, two weeks later. Now I'm an extra, you know, five pounds heavier or three pounds heavier or one pound like that's not how that works um because again you got to look at calories that are going in your body versus calories that are coming out of your body every time you take a piss every time you take a doo-doo you know what i'm saying like um every time you move your body and exercise you're burning calories you're utilizing energy you're putting some of that food that hopefully is nutritional. Um, you're utilizing some of that um, and getting some of the, the nutrients uh, within that food. Like, so it isn't, again, 
the time of day that you're eating is not a huge issue. Just make sure you're eating enough low-calorie dense foods that are healthy, packed with nutrients throughout the day in order to satisfy your hunger. You're hungry, you need to eat. Other times when you're hungry or your stomach is growling, you actually need to consume some water, drink some water. Um, because that's another thing too. Sometimes when we're thirsty, our stomachs will growl. Um, and a lot of times it's better to consume um, a good amount of water before you eat because then you're gonna know if you're actually hungry or not. Sometimes we think we're hungry, but we're actually thirsty. Um, but yeah. I don't want to go on a tangent or get too off topic here, but yes, you can eat at night and it's not going to destroy your, your progress. It's not going to mess up your gains. Um, it's just the amount of food that you eat closer to the time you go to sleep. That is something to be mindful of. If you eat a huge ass meal, literally like 30 minutes before you eat or before you sleep or an hour before you sleep, you may have some trouble sleeping. Which again, the trouble sleeping because of how much food you consumed right before sleeping, that could tie into the issues with potential weight gain um, or other health complications. But if you're, again, if you're at 2,000 calories a day eating, if that's your, like if you count macros or count calories, excuse me, if you count calories, which I don't do, but if you're if you're if your max for the day is 2000 let's say it is for what all right maybe you work you work second shift or you work uh, graveyard shift i don't know but let's just say um yeah it's midnight and you're at what 1800 calories just because it's midnight doesn't mean you can't eat that other 200 calories doesn't matter if it's midnight, doesn't matter if it's 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., like, have your 200-calorie meal. So that way, you can cap off that 2,000 calories for the day. You're not going to gain weight because of that. You're going to be at maintenance or in a calorie deficit, depending on your BMI, depending on um, your your BMR, Depending on so many different things, your goals, your intensity, how many rest days you have, your supplementation, like, you know, if you're on track, the times you eat is not going to make a huge difference. Again, unless you're eating extremely close to the time that you're sleeping. So ideally, you want to have a few hours at if you can have at least like two hours, two to three hours before, maybe even four hours of time in between your last meal and when you go to sleep. So that way your body can start to digest and break down that food. Ergo, your sleep will not be interrupted. Ergo, you won't gain any excess weight, aka it's okay to eat at night. Um, so yeah, man, those are the three, three of the worst nutritional tips which let's go back and let's recap. So the first worst tip is having a low calorie diet. Number two, the uh, the second worst tip is avoiding consuming fats entirely. You don't wanna do that. And then number three is avoiding eating at night. You can eat at night. 
You're not going to get fat because you eat at night. You're going to get fat if you eat too many calories and don't burn enough calories within that day. So that is that. Um, if you enjoyed the, the, the fitness, aka nutritional portion of today's episode, make sure that you download, rate, comment, and subscribe to the podcast because we got more episodes on the way. Now, hopefully I can make this quick and brief. Getting into finance, the S&P 500 at the close on Friday was at 4,515.77 points or 6.28% off of the 2022 highs. Now, according to Reuters reports all this week, Monday, in the post-pandemic world, we are facing a gloomy stew of debt, trade wars, and poor productivity. As of Tuesday, U.S. job openings in July post the third straight monthly drop. Job openings dropped 338,000 to 8.827 million uh, the last day of July. That's according to the latest JOLTS report. Fed Chair Jerome Powell, or the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said at the annual Jackson Hole Economic Policy Symposium last Friday that the U.S. Central Bank, and I quote, will proceed carefully as we decide whether to tighten further or instead to hold the policy rate constant and await further data, end quote. As of Wednesday, U.S. second quarter economic growth was revised lower as inventories drop. Gross domestic product, a.k.a. GDP, increased at 2.1% at a 2.1% annualized rate last quarter. Excuse me. This was revised down from 2.4% um, last month. Next up, we have inflation. Inflation is cooling. So, Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, or PCE, excluding food and energy, advanced at a 3.7% rate. This was a sharp slowdown from the 4.9% pace logged between January and March. The Federal Reserve uses PCE, aka Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, as an inflation gauge. So as PCE falls, this may cause investors to suspect a soft landing and no more rate hikes will follow, which could cause markets to rally prematurely. But we'll see what happens. As of Friday, U.S. unemployment rate rises, wage growth cools as the labor market slows. So U.S. jobs growth increased in August, but the unemployment rate rose to 3.8% while wage gains moderated. 736,000 people entered the job market last month, boosting the participation rate to the highest level in three and a half years. Now, if you've been following this podcast for, I don't know what, the past like two or three months, maybe even longer than that, you've heard me talk about the unemployment rate, which has been stuck at 3.5% for a pretty significant amount of time. Now, it has jumped to 3.8%. So, again, some of the previous episodes, there were reports saying that, you know, if we get somewhere within the 4% range of unemployment, we'll start to get just more economic pressure, you know, more, more fiscal, more monetary policy pressure on the economy, 
which could drive us into a possible recession, but also for the Fed's sake, it could really start to put a damper on inflation. Um, you know, just maybe not indefinitely, but just it could really start to bring inflation down um, unequivocally to where there's there's no 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 seeping out um, or them getting you know kind of just played uh, played out or tricked out as far as like how the seventies went where they thought it was they thought inflation cooled and then it went right back up to even higher levels but um yeah man we'll see we'll see how things go with that most people are saying or betting that the fed is going to hold rates um september 19th and 20th uh during their uh FOMC meeting we'll see what happens obviously they said you know we're either going to raise or we're either going to hold it just depends on data so the fed is still very data dependent um because again they want to break the back of inflation. They want to bring inflation down to that 2% target. However, they don't want to completely destroy the economy by driving us into an economic recession, causing unemployment to skyrocket um, to try to make this happen. This is why you keep hearing about a soft landing. The soft landing is inflation comes down, uh, unemployment remains steady and doesn't radically increase, um, and we, we get back to you know, price stability and, and just maximum employment, which again, 2% on inflation. Uh, and I guess employment being somewhere within like the low, I don't know, 2% or 3%. Like I have no idea what they would want inflation to be at on, or not inflation, but they would want unemployment to be at on a consistent basis. Um, I mean, yeah, just being a normal everyday citizen, I would I would suspect that zero percent unemployment would be ideal in the perfect world. But we don't live under perfect circumstances. So it's really hard to tell what the hell is going to happen. Honestly, uh, for me personally, this is all just a an extremely interesting learning experience, which is a part of the reason why I, I tried to just organize some of this information and try to like look at it on a larger scope or just on a bigger scale just to see how things move um and it's very interesting when you're starting when you when you watch it day by day week by week month by month and at this point we're starting to get on to year by year um because you can see you can see certain things coming you can see it now it doesn't always happen exactly the way you see it but yeah it's very like I said, it's very interesting to say the least. But um, as far as people like um, there's a few people I talk to about the economy and sometimes they'll ask me like, oh, you know, what do you think about this and that blah, blah, blah. But just in, as far as just in general, some of the things that I've monitored, which I know it's not that important because it's macro. Um, and for me, being somebody that is leaning more in in into the value investing realm macro macro uh dynamics you know the macroeconomic picture it just it shouldn't matter that much to a value investor value investors focus on fundamentals we look at annual reports we read them we analyze the data we make adjustments on that you know we create discount rates um if you're really advanced you do discounted cash flow analysis 
um, you know, and you try to buy businesses uh, at a cheaper price than what they're actually worth. And you hope that your investment thesis plays out. But yeah, I mean, like I said, people ask me about the economy and I mean, as far as I'm concerned or as far as what I see, yeah, there's there's more pressure that seems to be on the horizon. When you look at some of the data, it's not looking very good. Um, now, I don't know how bad it's going to be or how bad it's going to get, but yeah, it's looking kind of dicey out here. Um, if we're looking at things like the yield curve, uh, the yield curve inversion, when interest rates on certain treasury bonds are inverted. So, and again, if you've been following, you've heard me talk about this before. I was introduced to this by, um, honestly, by Market Mondays and guys like Ian Dunlap. He talked about the inverted yield curve. I did some research on it. Um, and yeah, so essentially at one point last, last year, interest rates were damn near at zero. Um, and this is on, you know, on the back half of COVID and everything that was going on, but in the bond market, that is where a lot of the quote unquote smart money is just the institutional investors, um, the guys with a lot of information and resources, uh, you know, with algorithmic trading, uh, uh, and all that type of stuff. I, I don't think there's any algorithmic trading in, in the bond market, mostly in the stock market. I would, I would suspect, but maybe somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. But anyway, in the bond market, when short term, uh, when short term bonds, short term treasuries are, are, are yielding at a higher rate than long dated or long-term treasury bonds, there is a yield curve inversion. And when the 10-year and the two-year, as well as the 10-year and the three-month yield curve inverts, aka when three-month yields are are yielding higher than long-term or the 10-year yields, as well as when the two-year is at a higher percentage than the 10-year, that those are classified as yield curve inversions. And for the 10-year yield and the three-month yield, when those invert, there was a there was a study that said that there was a 70% chance that the economy goes into a recession 12 to 18 months after that yield curve inversion. Um, and again, if you heard me talk about this in previous episodes, I noticed the yield curve inversion occur last March of 2022. So from there, I, you know, you make your little funky ass extrapolation or just projection or whatever you want to call it. Just some nonsense. Okay, you look at, okay, 12 to 18 months, when is that? Um, one of the dates was September um, 2023, which we are already in September. And then the other one was March of 2024. So we'll see how this month goes. Another thing with September is September and October, but I think mostly September. This historically, some sometimes, not every single September, but it's, it's known as a very... Uh, a very bloody month in the market. I'll say that there's always not always, but 
sometimes, I don't know how often, but there's major drawdowns in the market in September. Some of that could be because a lot of investors are rebalancing their portfolios, cutting their losses. Um, and then, you know, some people are taking profits off of the table, but a lot of it is rebalancing, especially if it's institutional investors rebalancing, because we're talking about tens of billions, billions, hundreds of billions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, million like so there's a lot of volatility um in some of the Septembers of you know just some of the financial years moving forward. Um I forget what they call it, but if you go on investopedia.com and look up the stock market in September, it will show you the history of it. Um so that's another thing. But um also to just the amount of debt that we have as 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 a as a as a country you know we've extended the the i guess if you want to call it just the debt uh just the debt levels like we've increased it we've added to the debt levels it was at like 31 trillion now it's at like 34 35 trillion um, credit card debt is almost at a trillion dollars if it hasn't surpassed a trillion dollars yet. So we're getting more defaults on d things like mortgages on, you know, people trying not to pay student loans, which I've, I've found out that you have, like, there's no forgiveness for student loans. It's very unfortunate. Um, but then also too, like, yeah, um, credit cards, especially is another thing. Most of us have credit card debt. Um, but some people are defaulting on that credit card debt or just not paying it back at all. Um, so that's another thing. But also with how inflation has been, although things like the uh, producer uh, consumption expenditures index or the PCE, even though it's coming down and even though just CPI has come down, if you go to the stores and you're buying products, everyday products that you need, you know, essential goods, you can see the prices are still increasing on in real terms. Um, but, you know, according to some of these reports, inflation is cooling and, you know, things are not that bad. But then, OK, you look at the housing market, 30 year mortgage rate um, recently was at over eight percent. Over 8% on a 30-year mortgage. Um, I just looked at a a report on Zillow. Um, I got an email from them recently. And the average cost of a house in California is well over $600,000. At one point, it was the average was at $400,000. And now it's $200,000 uh, higher. Like, you know, so things like that. Um... As well as, you know, there was the tech layoff earlier in the year, not, you know, not too long ago. Um, also, when we when we look at the possibility of things like Social Security, maybe not being a reliable source of income for individuals that are closer to retirement or for some of us younger individuals that will be retiring 30 years from now. Um there is a lot of downward pressure on the overall economy right now. Also, some of the geopolitical issues that we are having, 
Um, obviously, we've got the, the, the Russian-Ukraine war. We've also got, you know, the trade deficit, which is just a whole plethora of nonsense and just issues and just mismanagement that I can't even begin to describe because honestly, I haven't done a lot of work on it or a lot of research on it. But yeah, there are so many pieces of data that are pointing to more pain, more issues, more of, of just disastrous results. However, people are still touting this quote unquote soft landing. We'll see. Is it possible? Yes. A lot of things are possible. We will see what happens. But if we're going off of my funky ass unqualified opinion, it ain't looking good. We finna get this recession, whether it's a deep one or a shallow one. We finna get this recession like it's coming. Um, if not this year, top of next year. And even still, like there are so many repercussions from just all of the damage that we're doing. I didn't even mention the value of the dollar um, because, again, that's something that I don't do a lot of work on. I'm still trying to become the best fundamental analyst that I can be um, uh, just in my own right. And, and and just trying to allocate capital as intelligently as possible. So there's a lot of information to, to consume. There's a lot of information that's unnecessary. But if you're asking me, be prepared for a some sort of economic downturn that's that's maybe more threatening than the the stock market lows of October of last year. Something in the realm of, you know, uh, I don't know. Well, I don't want to go that far because that's a little over-exaggerated. But I do think that there is, you know, more of more of a downturn coming. It's it's gonna it's it's like I said, man, if you've been paying attention to some of the data, it doesn't look good. But we'll see what happens because I'm not a fortune teller. Um, I don't, I don't know. I can't predict the future. Honestly, I don't even like making projections because I feel like they're nonsense and they're based on so many like unrealistic assumptions. That's, you know, and also too, we're going off of histo uh, historical data, what has happened to the past. But the problem is the past is not indicative of future outcomes. Um, it's not an indication necessarily of what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We just know what humans have done in certain types of economic environments historically. So we try to extrapolate that out into, you know, the future indefinitely and just assume that we know. We don't know. We didn't know that COVID was going to come. Uh, we didn't know that they were going to print $6 trillion over the course of a three-year period to try to just essentially save the economy, give us money that they knew we were going to spend on consumer goods, which was another part of the inflation craze. But the main thing in my, again, in my funky as unqualified opinion was the stimulus, all of the, all of the fiscal stimulus, all of the monetary stimulus, like it was too much. It was too much. You printed $6 trillion. Like why? You don't think we're going to get inflation? That's exactly what inflation is. Too many dollars chasing too few goods, um, to quote Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital. 
Like, man. So, but when you when you when you look at the Jackson Hole Symposium, when you look at what Jerome Powell's talking about, they just blame it on the economic data. They're not taking accountability for all of the money that they printed, all of the stimulus and what it's done. Printing a bunch of new money is not helping us at all. Look what it's doing now. Look at where we are now. You know, so, but again, I'm still a rookie at this shit. So I really can't give you guys like enough of a perspective that is legitimate, like that you could run to the bank with. Like, that's not what this is. This is us learning together and just trying to slow down the way that the world is working from a financial perspective. Um, and just being able to constantly stay ready, no matter what is going on, no matter what data is being fed to us, no matter what they're saying on CNBC or any of these other news, Fox, whoever it is. And I love CNBC. I look at it sometimes for just, you know, for shits and giggles, just to see what some of the analysts say. Because again, they're paid to, 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 to give their views. They're paid, you know, uh, based off of some of their, um, what do you call it? Uh, you know, just some of their fees and stuff that they charge as far as like, uh, their management fees. So yeah, they always have a vested interest in what's going on and what they're touting or saying when they do make some of these television appearances. So yeah, this is why I try to go after the data and the information. I try to only look at what are the actual businesses inside of my investment portfolio doing. This is something that you also could look at as well focus on the businesses that you own in your stock portfolio don't focus so much on the macro economics that you get lost and you get lost in that and then you're doing like unintelligent things with your capital or you're selling stuff that you shouldn't be selling or you're buying investments that you shouldn't be buying because of what you heard from a macroeconomic perspective um so yeah before I make this entirely too long, um, that's just my opinion on where where I would I would think things could possibly go. And again, a lot of it is just based off of historical data um, and just some of the uh, some of the habitual behaviors and some of the psychology of humans and how we how we deal with money, because a lot of the time. It's rinse and repeat, making the same dumb mistakes, doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results, which Albert Einstein classified as insanity. Uh, so we'll see how insane it gets uh, over the next six to eight months. And yeah, so all of this information that I talk about, you know, it's just information. This isn't the gospel. This isn't, you know, uh take it lightly take it with a fat ass grain of salt you know what i'm saying that's it but anyway one last thing i want to get back into consolidated balance sheets because yeah i've been slacking on that so once again if you have not been following the podcast and you're new we've talked about uh 10k reports a 10k report is a report that you get from a company if you buy stock in a company 
And in that 10K report are financial statements. You get to see how the company that you own, how they manage the money that you're investing in it. And you also get to understand the business a little bit more. So what we've done over the last, I don't know, year or so um, is we've talked about some of the details inside of those annual reports because they're very important. It's going to help you understand the businesses and it's going to help you to make better investment decisions to see how the company functions with the money that's coming in from sales and the money that comes in from shareholders, um, a.k.a. Uh, or via via uh, stock purchases when you buy stocks, uh, when you buy shares in the company. So we're at the point where we are on the consolidated balance sheet. And in the consolidated balance sheet, now we're talking about liabilities or things that take money out of the business, money that goes out and does not come back in. So long-term uh, debt obligations is the next thing. So this is going to be brief, but according to investopedia.com, long-term debt is debt that matures or ends in more than one year or within a company's operating cycle if it's longer than one year. A company's operating cycle is the time it takes to turn its inventory into cash. Now, examples of long-term debt are things like long-dated bonds, the present value of a lease payment that extends past one year, and other examples of long-term debt are things like deferred tax liabilities that extend years down the line. Other examples are mortgages, car payments, or loans for machinery or equipment. Um, those are also classified as long-term debt liabilities or long-term debt obligations. Also, long-term liabilities are used as a tool for management analysis, comparing debt ratios to assets. So that's another important thing about debt, short-term debt as well as long-term debt. So examples of debt ratios include debt to equity ratios and debt to asset ratios. Now, one important ratio to look at, and this is something that I look at with the companies that I own, is a debt to equity ratio. Now, what is a debt to equity ratio? It, a debt to equity ratio shows you how much debt you have versus how much equity you have in a company or how much ownership you have. Equity is just all of the money that you have, all the cash reserves. It's also all of the intellectual property. It's all of what you get back after expenses, fees, and taxes are paid um, at the end of the day. So yeah, that's what you have left over. It's the ownership in the true ownership in the business, the real value of the business. So when it comes to debt to equity ratios, a debt to equity ratio of, of one and a half is terrible. What you want is a debt to equity ratio that is you know, zero point whatever, it could be 0 0.85 or 0 0.50. Um, but you don't, you don't want that number on the left side of the decimal to be anything above zero because that's not good necessarily. Now, some businesses are able to function with 
a debt to equity ratio that's that's one that's 1.0 or 1.1 or whatever 1.1 okay but just to describe the definition a debt to equity ratio of 1.5 as an example as of 1.5 would indicate that the business in question has $1.50 of debt for every $1 of equity so you don't want that. You don't want a debt to equity ratio of 1.5 because that's not good. So again, you want, honestly, you want a z- you want zero debt in the business. But if you're going to have some, you don't want the debt to equity ratio to be above one. That's for sure. So. And then, um, yeah. That's another thing, too, is like if you're looking at something like a debt to equity ratio, all you're doing essentially is you're going to the consolidated balance sheet. You're going down to the long term debt and you're taking that. And then you are dividing that by the equity that is in the company. Um, or you divide it by the net revenue of the company to get that ratio. And again, you want the business to be generating more revenue than than the amount of debt that they have, if they do have debt. So you want little to no debt in a company. But um, unfortunately, a lot of companies do have long-term debt obligations that span out many, many, many years and sometimes even decades. So those are things that you want to be paying attention to in the footnotes of annual reports because they will break down what type of long-term debt they have. Um, but again, looking at footnotes, that's something that we will discuss uh, in the distant future on future episodes because those footnotes are even more important when it comes to reading annual reports. So yeah. But anyway, that's pretty much it, man. Um Pay attention to companies that have long-term debt. Uh, the less long-term debt they have, the better. Some companies use long-term debt in order to fund capital expenditures, in order to fund daily operations in their businesses so that they can continue to generate capital and move forward. Um, it's a part of business. It is normal, but you don't want it to be abnormal. There are levels where issue uh, issuing debt or holding debt becomes a burden um, and becomes a negative to a business, especially if it's a capital intensive business or a business that needs a lot of money to make money. So yeah, always be mindful of how much debt a company has. And um, yeah, you can compare it to, you can compare the debt to the equity. You can compare the debt to the assets um, and you can compare the debt to the sales, all types of things to see is it really worth investing in this company? Like, or is the debt just too much for them to bear? Or, or are they in denial? So yeah, that is that. If you enjoyed the finance portion of today's episode, please make sure that you download, rate, comment, and subscribe to the podcast because we got more episodes on the way. Now, I'm about to go enjoy some dinner, about to go watch a movie with the fam, And then hopefully I can squeeze in a little bit of research and analysis and then get ready for Labor Day tomorrow. 
So hopefully you guys are enjoying your weekend or did enjoy your weekend. And hopefully you enjoy the rest of your week. So with that being said, you already know who it is. I'm not going to say it again. I'm out.